Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. One of our missions here at Reset is to look at disparities between white and black and brown communities and shine a light on the people working to fix those disparities. We call it Closing the Gap, and we've done past series on general health, the mortality rate, vaccine access, and food insecurity. Well, this week we are focused on mental health and access to mental health services. COVID-19 has brought social isolation, massive job losses, and more than half a million deaths. All that has pushed many people's mental health to the edge. As communities of color have been hit hardest, both physically and economically, getting mental health services to these folks must be a priority. Well, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is boosting funding at public and nonprofit centers on the south and west sides. She's also doubling Chicago's mental health budget and investing in new crisis response models. But critics say it's not enough. We hope she remembers the countless times on the campaign trail that she said that she would reopen the public mental health clinics. But so far, uh, we have not seen any evidence that she's going to move in that direction. So who's finding it hardest to access mental health care and why? And what is the city doing to reach its most vulnerable communities? Arturo Carrillo is Director of Health and Violence Prevention at the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. He's been leading research on Chicago's mental health needs as part of the Collaborative for Community Wellness. Arturo, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get into your latest research, can you tell us about the Collaborative for Community Wellness and the work that you do? Yes, thank you. Well, you know, the Collaborative for Community Wellness has been many years and and many organizations that have come together in the common effort to be able to increase access to mental health services in the city of Chicago. You know, we've been coordinating this collaborative for many years, as I mentioned, and, you know, throughout the years, we've driven community-based research to really drive our recommendations to policymakers as a way of being able to improve access for low-income communities of color throughout the city of Chicago. And so it's been a big effort, and we've been happy to see a lot of great results in, in throughout these years. You conducted a citywide mental health survey in, in 45 of the 50 wards. What specifically were you looking at, and how did you approach the work? Yeah, well, we were really interested in understanding, you know, what is the need citywide for mental health services? You know, we are in the midst of a pandemic. It has taken a toll on everybody throughout the city. So we really wanted to take a temperature read on where people are, uh, what are their desires, their needs for mental health services, Mm -hmm. and what do they think is available to them? You know, do they see that they have enough resources in communities to access the counseling services that they would want? Uh, What's their perception of the public mental health clinic system? Right now, we we understand that the public mental health clinics in the city of Chicago are the safety net, at at least they should be, Mm -hmm. and we want to, you know, understand if people uh, see it that way. So what did you find? Walk us through. Yeah. So, you know, our our findings were really telling. And, you know, unfortunately, it was not surprising to see some of the data that came back. You know, it mirrors many other surveys we've done throughout the years. You know, we were interviewing through an online survey a total of uh, 378 respondents. So we had, as as you mentioned, representatives from people from 45 out of Chicago's 50 wards. You know, our sample really showed that there was a high need for mental health services. The top reported mental health needs were anxiety, with 63% of the respondents uh, acknowledging that anxiety was an issue that they needed help with, followed by depression, more than half, 56% of the respondents 
uh, mentioned depression was a need. And in third place was trauma, right? People recognizing that trauma uh, had impacted their lives and they were looking for support in dealing with their traumatic experiences. So, you know, that's telling, you know, we, we, as a clinician, you know, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, you know, that, that is not surprising. That is very common for people who seek mental health services to, you know, want to uh, focus on either one of these three areas. Yeah, with anxiety and depression being on the top. Mm-hmm. You know, something else you found is that the majority of respondents, about 90%, say they do not believe there are enough services that are available in their neighborhoods. That's Absolutely. really significant. Is there a communication breakdown happening, you think, or are the well, services just not there? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, um, there is a communication breakdown. We, you know, I'm happy to talk about that in a bit. But you know, it's also a systemic problem here. You know, we're talking about the vast majority of the city of Chicago. And this is based on other research we've conducted throughout the years. You know, just recently this year, we were able to map out where the mental health conditions are in the city of Chicago, and the highest concentrations of clinicians are uh, in the highest income community areas of the city. Right. So, uh, just to give you the numbers, 78% of the city lives in community areas with less than 0.2 therapists per 1,000 community residents, as compared to 21% of the city uh, that lives in areas where 4.3 therapists exist for 1,000 community residents, right? So household incomes in those high-access areas is twice that of low-access areas. You know, so essentially we're talking about an enormous disparity when it comes to mental health access. And if you're rich and you live in communities that are of high uh, socioeconomic standing, you have an abundance of options for counseling services, whereas in low communities of color uh, and low-income communities in general, you just do not have that access in your community. Talk a bit more about the disparities that we're seeing in terms of access to quality mental health services on the south and west sides. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a clinician, I could tell you firsthand, trauma and complex trauma is exactly what we started this conversation talking about, right? When people present with anxiety, depression, um, and traumas, well, you know, when those are three presenting issues, more often than not, there's a long history of trauma that has been untreated. And so, you know, the type of trauma care that is necessary requires long-term, hour-long sessions that can help people in a very deliberate way work with the clinician to address their experiences of trauma that have gone untreated for years, right? So that requires weekly appointments. That requires, you know, a space that's safe, uh, easy access to you and your in your in your community. You know, those are the the types of services that you know people in the fluent community areas have you know access to. And in non communities of color, you know, we're, we're told that behavioral health services at a local neighborhood clinic is more than enough for you, and that's not the truth, right? We know that you know behavioral health care is an important part of healthcare service systems, mm-hmm. but you know, often health clinics don't have the space to offer you know long term trauma-focused, in-depth, one-hour session counseling sessions that are often needed to treat trauma. Arturo, what can you tell us about the people and communities that you surveyed? Yeah, you know, people are, you know, highly functional adults who are trying to deal with the realities of this pandemic, of living in low-income communities, dealing, you know, with financial strains, stressors, community violence, right? There's a lot of social issues that, that impact people's mental health. And, of course, that impacts people's um, well-being for themselves and their entire family. So, you know, for me as a clinician, you know, my entire career has been dedicated to finding ways to provide free access to mental health services. And, you know, going back to the survey, you know, when we surveyed uh, all the respondents, the highest barrier to access by a lot, by a big portion, uh, 60 percent of our respondents had the biggest barrier to accessing care was cost, mm. right? So not only not having access in your community, but knowing that the services that do exist are, are out of your price range. You cannot afford the co-pays or, you know, uh, the slide, even sometimes the sliding fee scales become too much. 
And so, you know, of course, we know that access to free mental health services as a human right should be something that the city really invests in. Back in 2018, you released a study on the mental health needs of residents that were living on the southwest side of the city. I'm wondering if you can compare those findings to what you're seeing now and and think about how the pandemic factored in here. Absolutely. You know, the comparison is striking. You know, we see that almost the findings citywide are almost identical to that of the southwest side. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's the reality of, you know, living in Chicago is, you know, issues of of community violence and hardship are not confined to the southwest side of Chicago. We know citywide, you know, we have many low-income communities that, that need this type of support and resource. You know, one of the things that was really telling also is that in our original study in 2018, we found that 80% of the respondents were interested in counseling services, professional counseling services, right? 80% of people told us that they were interested in seeking out a therapist. In this recent study, that number actually went up. We found that 93% of the respondents citywide wanted access to professional counseling services. And what was actually interesting, and this was a new question for us in this survey that we did not include in 2018, but we were very deliberate in 2018 to identify that even though 80% of the respondents were seeking out services, you know, the consequences of the city closing seven of the 12 public mental health clinics, one of which was in the heart of the Southwest side in the back of the arts community, we knew that with that amount of demand, those public mental health clinics could have been a resource uh, to provide residents on the Southwest side. What's interesting is in the findings from this current study, we found that 90% of the respondents would desire to go and receive services from city-run public mental health clinics, right? Nine out of 10 people would want to rely on the public mental health system. Again, as, as I mentioned earlier, has been significantly reduced throughout all these years. We're left with five public mental health clinics where at one point in time we had 19 in the city of Chicago. Wow. Well, as you just mentioned, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel shut half of the city's 12 public mental health clinics back in 2012. Now there are just five public clinics left standing. So talk about the long and short-term impact that we saw from those closures. Yeah, well, you know, of course, this is what this investment looks like in low-income communities of color. You know, this is why throughout the mayoral election campaign, we were asking every one of the candidates that was running for office if they would commit to reopening the public mental health clinics. And candidate Lori Lightfoot did commit to reopening the public mental health clinics. And, you know, in 2019, after she was elected, we continued to push for that. We, we want to see the rebuilding of the social safety net, right? This idea that the city has a responsibility for public safety in a way that does not invest further into punitive systems like the criminal justice system, right? We want to see investment in, you know, healing spaces within community, reopening these public mental health clinics. You know, I would ask your audience to envision, what would a local community mental health clinic that is publicly funded, publicly operated, that can be in your own community, what would that look like? What would you want it to look like? Mm -hmm. You know, we have a library system in the city that gives us access to books and education. In each one of our communities, why can we not have the same for mental health access? Right? This is where overwhelmingly we've heard from community residents. We want to see our tax dollars invested in producing spaces for healing in community. But what we continue to get is increased spending in policing. You know, per capita spending in policing has gone up at the very same time that spending for mental health services has gone down in the city of Chicago. Yeah, you call on Mayor Lightfoot to make good on her campaign promises and reopen the shuttered clinics. But instead, she's taking a different approach, investing in private centers and and pledging city dollars to close the access gap and and create this, quote, citywide network of care. Right. And, you know, as our data is showing, people are not seeing that actually making an impact, right? Because, you know, when the city plays philanthropist, 
what ends up happening is you create short-term spending on issues that, are, again, require long-term investment. You know, contracts like those can disappear at a moment's notice when funding goes away. We know that at the end of the day, that type of investment in existing clinics and community organizations may be able possibly to add staff, but, you know, it could also just continue to support the lack of reimbursable services that, you know, community uh, health clinics are not able to be reimbursed by for, from state or federal funding. So the question of how much capacity is added by supporting existing institutions is really an open question for us. You know, where we see the city's role is as being, again, the creator of the safety net. When the FQHC systems, when the you know nonprofit systems cannot provide access to care, we, we want to see our, our funding uh, being invested in the public infrastructure to ensure that the city can be that safety net, can coordinate and ensure that people can get care if they fall through the cracks. And ultimately, this is about giving people choices. If people are happy with, you know, mental health service delivery at an FKT, great. But what if they also had a choice to go to another community mental health clinic in their area that would be available to provide services as well? Before I let you go, Arturo, you also serve as Director of Health and Violence Prevention at the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. How has the pandemic impacted your work with that group? Well, that's that's <laughs> we could have another long conversation about that. You know, it's only exacerbated the, the problems that exist. You know, our current campaign, and this is where we've been focused more more heavily now, is to ensure that as we talk about dealing with crisis in the city of Chicago, we can take an enormous shift in the way that we respond to crisis. Currently, the police department is our crisis center for the city of Chicago, and that is, in our opinion, not a humane way of dealing with crisis. You know, we have a, currently the Treatment Not Trauma campaign that we've been focusing on to ensure that the city could create the infrastructure to respond to crisis crisis without involving police. That would require this type of investment in the public mental health system that we just talked about to be the home base for crisis teams that involve paramedics and social workers to respond to crises in communities like Brighton Park and throughout the city to make sure that people are engaged in support and can be able to receive the follow-up care and triage and, and, and again, services that cannot be provided elsewhere by the CDPH mental health clinics. You know, we, we know through a FOIA uh, investigation we've done that the current model that the city's introduced for a co-responder response has been authored by the police department. And what we are asking for is for the community to be the ones who define what crisis response looks like, especially in the midst of a pandemic like this. And, and again, the, the impact that will stay with us for years to come. Are you seeing greater demand then for services? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a troubling part of this, right? We know that people are dealing with crisis on a daily basis. And unfortunately, because there is not a system to respond to people preventatively and to address crises before they become bigger problems, uh, we, we, we see, unfortunately, things eventually spiral and people have to call 911 and that's when the police get involved. Well, you're doing great work. I can tell, Arturo, that this is a topic you are extremely passionate about. So thank, thank you. you for such great in-depth responses, Arturo. It's, it's, oh, it's great. I'm wondering, how are you taking care of yourself while you're doing this work? Sure. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, taking care of ourselves as clinicians is part of the way we, we are trained. You know, self-care is definitely something that we incorporate into our practice. Uh, you know, for me, uh, when the weather was better, it was great to be able to go outside and, you know, do exercise, get on my bike, 
you know, in, in the way of, of maintaining safe uh, exercise practices. You know, I can no longer go to the gym like I would be accustomed to doing. So, you know, trying to find ways of working out at home or, you know, riding uh, my bike when weather permits. <laughs> oh, nice. That's Arturo Carrillo, Director of Health and Violence Prevention at the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. He also leads the Collaborative for Community Wellness. Arturo, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. So what can we do to protect our bodies and minds during this time? Joining us now are two mental health experts. Cynthia Langtu is a practicing therapist and professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Hi, Cynthia. Welcome to Reset. Hello, and thank you for having me, Sasha. Also with us is Alexa James. She's executive director of the Chicago chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Health, or NAMI. Alexa, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Cynthia, I'll start with you. Now that we are entering year two of this pandemic, seems very strange to say. Tell us what you're seeing in terms of the mental health and and well-being of your patients. Yes, that's such a great question. And I think speaking of the amount of time, what I'm noticing is a sense of existential fatigue, right, that manifests itself physically or emotionally. Um, Folks aren't sure how long this will last. I don't know that any of us anticipated how long it would last. And so what I'm seeing is that uh, many of the clients that I see are not enjoying activities. Uh, that they used to enjoy and that the activity, some of the activities that they're doing, they find that they don't bring them as much energy as they used to. And speaking of energy, uh, many of my clients find that their energy waxes and wanes, which means they can't predict what their energy will be like at any given point in time. Many folks are finding a hard time focusing uh, on the work that they have to do or while they're watching TV or spending time doing things that are enjoyable, or they find themselves irritable and sometimes feeling sad and depressed and anxious as well. And are you and your colleagues seeing a greater demand for services? Absolutely. So I'm seeing more clients than I ever have in my small private practice, and many of my colleagues are saying the same. I think that uh, the move to telehealth, and I'm seeing all of my clients virtually, the move to telehealth has pros and cons, and I think one of the pros has been accessibility. More people are able to access services via telehealth, via telephone or Zoom, And, and so I'm seeing more of my clients consistently as well. I'm seeing more clients. Alexa, what's it looking like at NAMI Chicago, and how is the organization responding to those needs? Well, we are busier than ever, and actually, you know, our call volume, we run a helpline seven days a week, and it dramatically increased basically right a stay-at-home hit. Um, we're the 311 for Chicago in terms of mental health. They patch calls over to us. So what we were actually seeing was a very large number of calls related to anxiety and mental health issues, but that were coming from real destabilization of safety net services, food insecurity, housing, et cetera. And we already had a really thin um, safety net in the city. And so when COVID hit um, Chicago so hard, it was devastating to so many families. So a lot of our work mobilized around how are we responding to the general social service needs and basic needs of of individuals. And for example, food insecurity was 21 times the need that it was, you know, months prior to that. So we responded by mobilizing and addressing all of the needs of our callers, recognizing that mental health um, is very, very tied to purpose, community, connection, housing, Um, and general basic needs that we're not going to feel good if we can't feed our kiddos, you know? Yeah. Cynthia, how does isolation and loneliness 
truly impact our health, both mentally and physically? Yes, thank you so much for that question. I would say what I mentioned before, that existential fatigue manifests itself physically, right? And so I find that uh, many more folks are having headaches, stomach aches, lethargy. They're finding that they're eating more uh, or eating a lot less. And many folks are moving a lot less than they have in the past. I would also say, um, you know, importantly, uh, that paying attention to what this looks like for our youth is also something that's been critical during this time. And for our youth who's been, you know, many of them remote schooling, uh, noticing their headaches, stomach aches, lethargy. Uh, and for the youngest, noticing changes in their play, right? And so we're noticing that some of our younger children, right, who let us know what's going on with them, their language is play, are playing less um, or playing more violently or playing um, less hopefully as they might in the past. And those are important signals that our younger children are having challenges. But it's important to pay attention to our older children and young adults as well and the ways that this existential fatigue and the social isolation is impacting them as well as all of us. Alexa, talk a bit more about how the pandemic is, is changing how we think about mental and emotional health. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, it's so important that we get to that point, too. I mean, you know, as the doctor just discussed, there is so much tragedy and grief that is being expressed in play in our relationships and disconnection and our lack of motivation to engage in behaviors that used to bring us joy, right? All of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And at this, And at the same time, this is going to go on for a long time. You know, trauma and grief is now something that we are going to have to live with and work through and really think about building resilience in a much more strategic way. This is an opportunity for us to think about what does it look like to have mental health literacy so that we can better identify when our kiddos are struggling, our colleagues, our workforce. Um, How do we all step into the role of healer? Because if I'm feeling better than you today, what energy can I give to reach out, to connect, to encourage that type of, of work with each other? But the other good news is I think that the conversation about wellness was immediate. Because I think that we all really know, whether it's intellectually or, you know, explicitly, that disconnection is really problematic to our mental health. We immediately Immediately knew knew. something felt off. This is weird. And I think it's so interesting because, listen, I'm a clinician and I respect clinical care and I love therapy and all of those things. But I know that my quality of my relationships directly dictates the quality of my life. And when those are disrupted, it really creates some instability. And so the conversation about mental health has been immediate and really pervasive and really powerful. And I think that as a community, we are experiencing something for the first time together. And, you know, very different boats, of course, right? Mm -hmm. But we're experiencing something together. And the fact that people are help-seeking because there is somewhat more accessibility through teletherapy is encouraging. I mean, we're hearing from clinicians that the rate of compliance or um, seeking and making and keeping appointments is significantly higher than it was in person. This makes sense. But we also have to realize now, if this is the way we're going to go, which we should, do we have enough resources for folks who are using teletherapy services? So do kiddos have enough space in their home to have private conversations with school social workers with remote learning? Um, Do people feel like they have access to internet and phones, et cetera, to maintain that connection? 
So I feel really hopeful about the education and the investment that this could potentially push in terms of mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. But I fear that once people start going to restaurants again, we will forget that trauma lives within us and there's a lot more work that has to be done. Such a good point. You know, we've also been hearing here at Reset from Chicagoans who say they don't know where to go for services or they don't feel like they can afford them. Cynthia, how do we overcome some of these access barriers? Yes, and I love, Alexa, some of the resources that you provided. One of the biggest things that folks say to me is they're not sure where to go, what to do. And so I would say certainly uh, the resources that Alexa through NAMI has mentioned. And then I would say the first step would be for a person who's experiencing challenges or their family are to reach out to your health care providers, your primary health care providers who can connect you with mental health services. Uh, another step is to go through um, your insurance provider to see what mental health services are available through your insurance provider. And for those who don't um, have stable insurance, to figure out the nearest health care providers that do and how they can specifically connect you with mental health services. Um, But I think it's a really important larger question about mental health being a central part of any public health plan so that there is accessibility. We know, um, as Alexa just said, that quality connections are of the utmost importance. And if we're not doing well emotionally and mentally, we won't be able to have those quality connections. So it's critical that accessibility is front and center in any public health plan that we have. Alexa, picking up that discussion on on quality mental health services here in the city of Chicago, what resources can you recommend? You know, there's actually, there's so many. I mean, they're really like some very strong, wonderful clinicians and providers. So a few things I just want to make super clear is that I want to be sure that we're talking about seeking services before we feel bad. I mean, certainly when you feel bad or when you're in a crisis, absolutely. But this is about like, I exercise every day, not because I'm trying, because I'm trying to avoid getting sick, right? Um, Because I'm trying to avoid um, having health issues due to being overweight or whatever it is. We need to start thinking about mental health in that same way. And so we need to think about what resources are are going to, can I put in front of me now so that if I do feel kind of bad, I have connection already and tools. It's very difficult mm-hmm. when you're feeling in tremendous despair to have the energy to reach out and try to shop for a therapist. Mm-hmm. It's like dating. I mean, it's complicated. So at NAMI Chicago, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, but it's like worse. <laughs> and at NAMI <laughs> Chicago, we have this helpline that's free. We are fluent in the resources. We understand what insurance carriers are doing. We know who speaks Spanish in what part of the city in terms of you know Medicaid, all of these issues, and we will advocate for you if we don't feel like accessibility is working in your favor. So our helpline is free; it's totally confidential. And what we've seen is that 30% of our 16,000 call volume this year was support calls. People just wanted to chat, right? People just wanted 15 to 20 to 30 minutes on the phone to just process how they're feeling. And I think that as advocates, we also have to stand up and say we are holding accountable a lot of systems of care law enforcement agencies, government, we also have to hold accountable clinical care. That if folks go to a therapist or to an inpatient hospital and they don't receive good care, they don't feel supported, it's not trauma or healing centered, they're not going to go back to mental health care. So we also really push this responsibility of who is making sure that these services have the resources that they need to be the best that they can be. And I would just continue to reiterate that our helpline could be kind of that clearinghouse for you, that we can help you find that connection and we won't let you fall through the cracks. That's Alexa James, Executive Director of NAMI Chicago. Also with us is Cynthia Langtu, a practicing therapist and professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. 
Well, we are talking about how the pandemic is impacting our mental health. It's the latest in our series, Closing the Gap, where we explore issues around inequality in the greater Chicago region. And we hear from those people who are working to address them. And in this round, we are exploring disparities in mental health care. Cynthia, at some point, you have to think about yourself, right? I wonder what it's been like to help clients through this time, this unprecedented crisis, while also managing your own mental health. Yes, of course. You know, so I, too, uh, am experiencing everything that my clients are, right? And I think that's one of the most important pieces is to acknowledge that this is, in fact, a parallel process. You know, the parallel process of COVID-19, moving to quarantine, you know, helping my my own children remote learn, uh, going through the racial disparities this summer that were laid bare before us. I, too, have moved through all of the pieces that my clients are and my colleagues are doing the same. So I think first acknowledging that I'm experiencing what the folks around me are, what my clients are experiencing, and making sure that I'm taking care of myself proactively in all of the ways that are important for me, physically, socially, emotionally, right, to make sure that I am resourced enough to offer my clients the resources that they need. I can't offer anything that I don't myself have. And so if I'm not taking care of myself physically, socially, and emotionally, I won't be able to show up for my clients. The other piece that I would say is really important during this time for my clients, but I take this on myself, is Mm self-compassion. I acknowledge that I, too, am going through, as you said, an unprecedented, difficult time, and that I have the permission, like my clients do, to move more slowly and to not have as long a to-do list, to take really, really great care of myself, for myself to be able to be present, for my family, but also to be able to be present for my clients. And I see that many of my colleagues are being proactive about taking really great care of themselves so that they can be present for those that they're tasked with taking care of as, as well. Alexa, how do you take care of self? Oh, you know, I said to my team in the beginning of this, um, we don't have the luxury as people of resources and people who have been able to keep their job to not be well. So what we did was amp up our wellness programs within our organization. It's so critically important. I mean, we can't, you know, that whole like cliche example of you put the mask on before you help others. We're not good at that in the helping profession, right? Because we have this mentality, like we got this, this is why we do this work. So not true. This has been the most trying time personally for me, my family, and my team. But at the same time, what I thought was so helpful is that we we were honest, we processed. I was seeing a therapist, making sure I was continuing to work out, creating space for myself. Because what we hear often is that we're learning from this experience, but you can't actually learn from this experience and build resilience without insight. And if you are not well, it is very difficult for you to have insight. So as the honor and privilege that I have to be working in a healing profession, uh, my responsibility, just like it would be if I was a an athlete to like practice, you know, dribbling all the time or yeah. playing basketball, my responsibility is to be willing to model that and also to be super authentic and transparent when I am not available to love and support my community in the way that they need during that time. Cynthia, we we know that black and brown people have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic on all fronts, Uh, more deaths, more cases, more job losses. Talk to us about the impact that this could have on black and brown folks in the years to come. Oh, in the years to come. Thank you so much. 
And so the racialized trauma that's been laid bare before us in the last year, you know, has been racialized trauma uh, that black and brown folks have felt historically. And so what that means is that many of us have come to an understanding of the racial disparities in our healthcare system, in law enforcement, uh, and all of these pieces. But many black and brown folks have been living this and knowing this for many, many years. And, and there's a duality of seeing other folks come to that understanding that feels both validating, but also leaves you know, black and brown folks wondering uh, why we weren't able to see some of these disparities in the past, and then also what we will do about them. And so I think the question uh, with respect to racialized trauma, as revealed by COVID-19 and, uh, you know, the, the events of this summer, uh, the question of racialized trauma is what will we do? Right. And for many, I think it feels like a turn. It feels like a hopeful moment. Right. But long term effects, I think, will depend on what we actually do, what action that we take uh, and how what hopefully we're learning uh, in this time transforms our medical systems, mm-hmm. our law enforcement systems, the way that we're doing things structurally. And I think that will have such an impact on the mental health and well-being of black and brown folks uh, in the U.S. and all over the world. Last summer, Mayor Lightfoot and her COVID-19 Recovery Task Force released a report. It was on ways to help Chicago come back from the pandemic. Alexa, you helped craft the city's recommendations around mental health. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly tell us about that? Sure. You know, I I also I want to commend the mayor because a lot of obviously local municipalities were looking at what it's going to look like post COVID in their cities, their counties, their states, et cetera. I hadn't seen any other leader address emotional and mental wellness as a component or a pillar of that plan. So we were encouraged. And she brought together people from the community, from the faith-based community, et cetera, mental health, health care, to think about what does it really mean to heal communities, particularly in black and brown communities. And we know that according to the Mental Health Atlas, that in 2017, black residents were twice as likely per capita to be hospitalized for mental health needs, which means that they're receiving care through the crisis system. And so we looked at that very closely and we thought, what do we have to do to reform that statistic? Why is it that the black and brown communities are utilizing the crisis system, which by the way, means access of first responders and bringing somebody to an emergency department for psychiatric support. And we thought about how are we using people from community to educate us about what is needed? This is leveraging faith-based leaders. This is very healing. Again, this cookie cutter idea of healing through clinical care is just not a tradition that we want to continue thinking about. Accessing folks from community to be community health workers and educators to make sure that we are even thinking about the architecture of our city and accessibility so that people feel like they're empowered and have access and making sure that advocacy is part of this system. And the other thing that you and Cynthia both have talked about is this idea of coordination that there are places for people to seek treatment. We have a huge capacity that we need to build, but there are places and people don't know where to go or where to start. And a lot, and stigma has a lot to play with that. You know, I don't want to ask for help because I'm embarrassed. So a lot of the recommendations in the emotional wellness committee that we talked about was having a centralized space 
where everybody can get connected to services, a two-on-one system, um, making sure that resources are vetted and made aware for people on the city's website, et cetera. So a lot of this was about education, stigma reduction, really focusing on creating a healing-centered region as opposed to thinking about trauma in the deficit, that we have a lot to learn actually from communities who've experienced high levels of trauma and poverty and have had to live in a very oppressive city for many years. And we should lean on them to understand how do you survive this? How do you survive this type of community tragedy? And that's what we did. A lot of listening and a lot of work and implementation continues to be done through CDPH and other social service providers. So before I I let you both go, I just want to get quick general tips from you on, on coping with the stress and depression and anxiety that we're feeling right now. Cynthia, you first. You know, self-compassion, really being gentle and tender with ourselves and being compassionate with those around us, you know, playing games, finding joy, focusing on the things that bring us joy, right? Listening to uplifting music, poetry, um, connecting in ways that nourish you physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. And another thing that I would say a practical tip uh, is to put your hand over your heart and take a couple of deep breaths and acknowledge that here and now in this moment, right, that you're able to do so. Uh, And then find ways to connect meaningfully with those you love and who love you and bring you joy and energy. Alexa? Oh, I just did that tactical breathing exercise, Cynthia. That I, th- I was going to say breathing is so critically important. And the only thing I would add is do something creative every day. You know, a lot of us are, are pushing ourselves into places that are uncomfortable during this time to try to diversify what has been mundane in the last year. Do something creative, paint, draw, calligraphy. It's enhancing. And when you can push yourself to do things that are a bit uncomfortable, it's resilience building. And it tells you that you are capable of doing hard things, different things, and transitioning and being flexible. Such great advice. That's Alexa James, Executive Director of NAMI Chicago. Also with us, Cynthia Langtu, a practicing therapist and professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Alexa and Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. Can I just pop in and say one more thing, Alexa? As a Black woman, as a Black therapist, one of the primary things that I hear is the stigma of mental illness and wanting to, not wanting to seek out help. And I cannot tell you how the work that you do with NAMI Chicago and then NAMI in general has proactively lifted so much of that and how I see people every day who are impacted by the work that NAMI does on, um, you know, lessening the stigma of seeking out mental health and emotional support. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, oh my the, God, that just brought tears to my eyes. All the that feels. So, thank you. All it's the feels. So real. Oh, Cynthia, it that, is so real. You left, you left my day better. Thank oh. you so much. Oh. Thank you so much for having me. Thank that. you. Look at WVZ making so connections. I, <laughs> <laughs> so Sometimes in radio, the sweetest moments happen after the interview ends. And that's today's Reset. Stay tuned all this week for more from our series, Closing the Gap, as we focus on access to mental health services. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.